and thank you for joining us. This is From the Newsroom, uh, the weekly discussion conducted by the Holland Sentinel staff. I'm Brian Vernellis, Digital Director, and today I'm joined by Managing Editor Audra Gamble. Hello. Hi, Audra. And on my right, Political Reporter Arpan Lobo. Hi, Brian. How's it going? I'm good. You? I'm doing well. Thank you for asking. You've had a couple of busy nights uh, the last uh, two nights watching the Democratic debates from Detroit. Tried to get you down there, but unfortunately they denied us, even if we had to sit in Hockey Town and uh, <laughs> kind of watch from afar. But yeah, I was. we were surprised by that. But uh, you were able to watch on television and uh, you wanted to express your thoughts about uh, some of the candidates, some of the key moments. Overall, what were your basic, uh, what were your uh, thoughts about the night, the two nights? Well, first, Brian, I do want to say while it is bad news that I wasn't able to go in person, I do still have some takes so that we don't have to worry about that. I spent <laughs> takes for days. Uh, six hours over two nights, watched the, both of the debates in their entirety. So I'm ready to go. But um, what, what I thought of the two nights was um, in the first round of debates, we had two different nights where one night was focused on policy and the other night was kind of more political showmanship, candidates going after each other. I thought that that political showmanship was extended throughout both nights this time. I And I, I, I think that CNN, the uh, network that was holding the um, debates, kind of had a hand in that. There were a lot of questions that didn't have to do exactly with policy, but kind of went more after, what do you think of this candidate? Or there wouldn't even be a question. It would just be, respond to what this candidate said. Interesting. That being said, with 10 people on stage each night, it was going to be cluttered anyway. But I think that this format kind of enhanced that even more. But I do think that still there were there were plenty of uh, takeaways that can be made from the event. Yeah, I mean, part of it is just the sheer number of bodies up on those stages. I mean, we had 20 candidates, 10 on, on the first night, 10 on the second night. And when you have so many people up there, even if it is three hours a night, you're only getting kind of little sound bites from each candidate at a time, which for some candidates that are very well known and have a lot of name recognition, they might, you know, have the luxury of being able to get in you know, those jabs that maybe another candidate they're going up against. But for those candidates that are really, frankly, just fighting for name recognition right now, I'm not sure how helpful that sort of um, format is for them to really get across any sort of significant policy ideas to an audience. That being said, they're limited to such a small amount of time. Who are some of the standouts, do you think, from the two nights? Well, on the first first night, I think that the, the two candidates that jumped out to me after the event were, this, were the same two candidates I expected to be the most impactful, who was uh, Senator Elizabeth Warren and Senator Bernie Sanders. I think they dominated that first night. Hmm. And given the fact that the rest of the uh, outside of uh, Pete Buttigieg, the candidates on stage that night, none of them were even close to where, the, where uh, uh, Bernie and Warren are in polling-wise. But I still think they were able to kind of convey – the things that they've been working toward the entire campaign, their policies on on healthcare and on education, on on the other uh, issues that are going to be important in this campaign. I, I thought the first night there were a couple of of decent moments from Amy Klobuchar. Um, Beto had, you know, Beto O'Rourke had had a couple of things here or there. Um, there was a kind of nasty takedown of um, Maryland Rep. John Delaney. Um, by Elizabeth Warren that got a little uh, spicy out there. Um, but I I think that 
the kind of fascinating thing for me in, in night one of the debate is that a lot of people were expecting um, to see Bernie Sanders and Elizabeth Warren kind of go head to head for the first time, really talk about, well, you know, I'm more progressive. No, I am. But really, they kind of joined together and they they created a united front of, no, we're taking the party to the left and everyone else needs to kind of get in pace behind us. Um, and I thought that was a smart move because you saw them kind of create this little unit that couldn't quite be attacked very efficiently by the the candidates that were trying to be more moderate in order to appeal to that that kind of wider base later on in the race. It it was pretty they they each had moments where they totally dunked on some of their <laughs> Oh, opponents. for sure. You mentioned Warren on poor old John Delaney who after spending 15 million dollars on this campaign is still pulling at 0%. Ouch. So, uh, I think he might have a decision to make pretty soon, but it wasn't just Warren on on Delaney. Uh, Joe Biden went after Tim Ryan uh, on the issue of uh, Medicare for all. With the uh, he he Tim Ryan is, was asking Bernie Sanders, "How do you plan on paying for this? How do you plan on doing this?" And Bernie re- replies back, "He goes, I wrote the damn bill." Mm-hmm. And then Tim Tim Ryan's response was, "Oh, you don't need to yell." He had nothing for him. It was it was a very sometimes we get to these debates and smaller candidates who we don't necessarily know much about can shine. I, I We saw that in the first debate, first round of debates when candidates like Andrew Yang and Yulian Castro had good nights that kind of brought their names out there. But this was sort of not – maybe maybe it's a death knell for, for candidates like John Delaney and Tim Ryan, but – I, think, I, I definitely I, think it was it was it was Bernie and Elizabeth Warren versus the moderates. I think that my favorite part of that Tim Ryan Bernie exchange is that Ryan's campaign then on Twitter later um, and and the next day put together you know a little little poster that said you don't need to yell but it was in all caps which is kind of the universal sign that you are yelling via the internet. So that was a little bit of a mix-up situation. There, there are certain times where you can take jokes uh, on the chin and you can kind of roll with them and make yourself like a, you know, uh, uh, an ironic hero or something. This was not one of those times. Sure. Tim Ryan got dunked on and his response was, you, you, if you get dunked on in that manner, you just have to move on. You cannot buy into your own d- downfall. Yeah. Um, do you want to talk before we move to night two a little bit about Marianne Williamson? I think so. I yeah, think we let's should. do it. Um, <laughs> so she had she had kind of a good moment or two there in in her portion of the debate. Um, she had what a lot of people thought was a very eloquent answer about um, reparations for African Americans. She actually threw out a dollar amount, which a lot of other candidates are not willing to do. However, I'm going to couch that and say I still think she's a very problematic candidate, and I don't necessarily know that I would qualify her as a liberal. Um, she has a lot of very out there stances. She um, is a self-help author, and she writes about weight loss and also um, believes that um, God is the answer to a lot of illness. Um, so there's some research to be done in terms of her policy stances, I think, here, there. And, and when you say that she believes God is the answer to illness, it's not that she means, oh, you know, prayer combined with medical attention. No, she just thinks prayer is the, is the solution. Yeah, even, for, there's, there's, even for issues like or for diseases like HIV, there are some very 
dangerous stances. Um, yeah, she, also, she's a known anti-vaxxer. Yeah, also um, believes that's the case for swine flu, that right. God can solve swine flu. So we've got some questions there. She did have a good kind of little standout moment there, but I think she still has quite a lot to prove. It, it's one of those things where, where we have candidates who, because there are so many unknowns in this field, when we have candidates like this who can kind of capture our attention, it, it reminds kind of the, the American viewer that more research needs to be paid than you can't just spend two nights once a month watching these debates. If you really want to be an informed voter, it takes more, it takes more than just, you know, the the debates. It takes research and it takes kind of a, um, you have to be thorough in in your approach to it. Yeah. Really, really look in before you start donating your money to these guys. (laughs) Um, okay. So night two, Arpan, um, was a more diverse group of people on stage in terms of ethnicity. That's for sure. Night one was all white people. Um, This was completely kind of luck of the draw in the previous set of debates. It was based upon polling numbers, correct? RPM. Well, the, the, the qualifiers were based on uh, polling numbers, but the way CNN uh, set up the, 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 the Detroit debates, right. It was actually, the 20 candidates who were there qualified because of their polls and their donations. But in terms of who went on what night, that was actually CNN selection process. And it was kind of like a random draw out of a hat almost, right? Right. They treated it sort of like the NBA lottery um, where each single spot is kind of doted on and approached. Um, There are problems, in my opinion, with this uh, winners and losers approach to uh, politics and campaigns in general. Um, especially like, like we mentioned the fact that candidates are asked, Oh, what do you think about this? Respond to that. Not talking about each other instead of actual policy. I didn't think that CNN's approach, um, to selecting who went on what night was the best, um, to, to put it that way. But going back to the, to your original point about the second night, it was, was a more diverse, uh, field and it was also more diverse in background too in the first night you really only had marion williamson who wasn't a uh career politician on the second night you had uh andrew yang an entrepreneur um you had uh julian castro who's a former former mayor but he's also a former HUD, hud secretary so just kind of the list of of the rundown of night two is Colorado Senator Michael Bennett, uh, Vice President Joe Biden, uh, Senator Cory Booker, Julian Castro, who's the former HUD secretary, uh, Mayor Bill de Blasio, um, Representative Tulsi Gabbard, who's from Hawaii and is also a veteran, uh, Kristen Gillibrand, uh, Senator Kamala Harris, Washington Governor Jay Inslee, and then, like you said, our pan, uh, Andrew Yang. Quite a list. <laughs> yeah. Do you uh, do you to see this as a watershed moment where this is, uh, you know, when we go back in the history books twenty years from now, they're going to say tonight was kind of the night where the the cream uh, the cream rises to the top, and mm, your guys no. like Delaney. And- <laughs> I wish oh. I could say that. You no, know, <laughs> I don't. Th- I don't know if it's so much cream rising that is rock sinking. Yeah. Um, okay. Or or kind of blandness sinking a little bit. I mean, if you didn't have a standout moment or if you got slammed by a bunch of other candidates, you might not make it to the next round of debates. The, the first night and the second night definitely had different themes. Um, The the first night, like like we mentioned, it was, it was uh, Sanders and Warren versus the moderates. The second night it was Joe Biden versus everybody. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Every Mm -hmm. single candidate from Michael Bennett to Cory Booker to Kamala Harris, they all 
when they got the chance, went after the vice president. But then, interestingly, later on, it was Tulsi Gabbard kind of dunking on Kamala Harris's attorney general record, the, the, which this, I don't know that we expected. This, this I, I think it was expected that it would be brought up during the debates, but I don't think that uh, – I, I didn't think it was going to be Tulsi Gabbard. No, I no. thought that wasn't going to pop up until much later in the in the campaign. And w- with due respect to Tulsi Gabbard, I mean, she's not polling at the, at the top. She's no, not but she did her research. She was there. She came out and delivered uh, quickly. The the theme of the second night was definitely it. It wasn't you know. Uh, you, sometimes you go to local events. Like I was I was in Ionia last month for a Republican event and they're all talking about, oh, Republican unity, it's for a congressional seat. So it's obviously much, much, much smaller scale. But last night, Democrats were at each other for the entire, from start to end. Um, yeah, and there were a couple of moments, I, I I think it was Cory Booker and once or twice Julian Castro that they kind of were, were poking at the, the CNN moderator saying, well, of course, everyone on this stage believes in, you know, X, Y, or Z. Right. They were kind of trying to get to some sort of party unity, but we're kind of splitting hairs at this point of, okay, how much Medicare for all does this person believe in? How much, you know, border control does so-and-so want? Like, it's right. it's a little tricky it, right now to get it's those almost, differentials. It's almost as if these Republican, uh, or I'm sorry, these Democratic debates are being framed or being viewed or moderated by a Republican standpoint because – Democrats have their core issues that they, no matter who the candidate is, they are going to take that to the White House should they get there. And same thing with the Republicans, of course. But I, I think in a field where maybe nine candidates have the same stance on health care, it's not worth it to dote on the one candidate. Um, and I, I think that more attention kind of needs to be paid to what separates these candidates from each other instead of what separates them from a the, potential, you know, right. Republican to be. They're later not running. They're not running against uh, President Trump yet. They're mm-hmm. not trying to capture Republican voters right. yet. That'll come further in the future, but we are still several months away from yeah. even thinking about that. So, Arpan, in in the last set of debates, um, Vice President Biden did not do so hot, <laughs> to put it lightly. No. Um, do you feel that his performance was better, kind of middling, or worse last night than the previous set? So uh, I think before before we go to that, it's worth mentioning that in most polls, in I think the Real Clear Politics uh, aggregate, Biden is 16 points ahead of Elizabeth Warren or Bernie Sanders. I cannot remember who's in second. Sure, he's he's clearly in the lead. Right, right, and that's even after a pretty bad first debate. Can I hop in real quick? Yeah, is Real Clear Real Clear Politics is that taken over 538's spot? Do you think 538 is really kind of fallen? After just I, I think totally it depends how nerdy you I, are. I think 538 is being quieter because yeah, they were very I, boisterous. Yeah. You know, 538, I'm glad, you know. Uh, I mean, mad props to Nate Silver, but. Right. He's The thing is, when you're right, most of the time, people are going to remember when you're wrong. <laughs> right, and they were exactly. wrong. They told us the entire time Hillary Clinton was going to win. And that obviously wasn't the case. But it's not like they were the only ones that were saying no. that. You know? And the, I that's mean, the danger with looking at polls. There's always this, a margin yeah, of error. Especially this early. Polls can, can right. be really wonky. So we um, kind of take that with a grain of salt. But, but going back to that, Biden is 16 points ahead of the next closest person. So mm-hmm. he had a cushion. Last night, I didn't think it was good. But I certainly didn't think it was as bad as the first debate because there, I do think there were moments where he was able to kind of um, carry himself better. I, the real memorable moment from that first debate from Biden for me was when he said explicitly, he's like, I'm out of time. 
Mm-hmm. Biden is a very old-fashioned Democrat where uh, in, he talks about how he's a people person um, where manners are very important to him. So every single time a moderator stepped in to cut him off saying your time is up, he stopped. Most other candidates, I think with the every except, other candidate. Well, I think Andrew Yang was the only other one that didn't ever try to talk over a moderator, but yeah. um, Biden would stop. And there was one, I think, moment where Julian Castro was asking uh, Biden about an Obama era policy on deportations. And Biden's belief is that uh, if you enter the country illegally as an undocumented immigrant, you should not be criminally prosecuted but you should be civilly prosecuted and then you should the u.s government should have the option to send you back as further um as, as more and more candidates kind of go through a more progressive stance where um maybe deportations aren't going to be a part of their um uh campaigns he was challenged for that and i remember when Julian castro called him out for it and he goes the obama administration um deported this many people what what are you how, how come you didn't stop that and so i remember vice president biden he was saying something and he goes we de- deported people and then jake tapper cuts him off and he doesn't say anything and he just ends on we deported people mm. it wasn't a very good soundbite um that being said i do think that he was a he did a much better job tonight or last night at handling sort of the criticisms I one moment that stuck out for me was when uh, Senator Gillibrand was asking uh, Biden about uh, women's rights and he kind of went back after he goes, I wrote the it's on us bill. And I know you know that because we were at Syracuse University together in New York uh, talking about it. And then he essentially told her, he goes, you used to think so highly of me. How come it's changed now that you're running for president? Yeah, and it took Twitter approximately 12 seconds to pull up that tweet, you know, of her, you know, saying, you know, thanks for coming out and supporting, you know, it's on us. And um, and then she went after him for for an editorial he wrote that was, right. a long time she, ago she, that she really, I don't think. I, I don't, she latched onto it yeah, pretty hard. Yeah, and, um, and he was like, why Why are we talking about this? Like, what's going on? Right. So, it, it's one of those odd things for Democrats as we're getting into these debates. Because uh, we were talking about in the newsroom earlier, they were criticizing Biden so much for Obama era policies. Those policies, that buck stops at President Obama. I cannot imagine any of these candidates levying that criticism at president obama well and I'm because also, yeah i'm also not 100 percent sure how useful of a tactic that is because president obama is wildly popular with Demo- the democratic base right so and he, not just the democratic base he got a lot of many moderate moderates voters and to go too. right so that's why joe biden is polling so well right so it's an interesting um strategy i guess i don't know if it's helpful it it feels kind of like really all it's doing at the moment so early on is is dividing the base right right and then i know cory booker went after biden a lot for obama era policies kamala harris as well um it's just one of those things where if we're going to focus on the past how are we going to set these parameters are we going to pull an op-ed from who knows when um yeah, wasn't it like eighty eight or it something? Was, it was. Like he was beyond. Yeah. It was. I. I. It was. It was beyond kind of the realm of reasonable doubt. Nineteen eighty eight and twenty nineteen are two very very different years. <laughs> I think that goes without saying. I don't think that it was smart for Senator Gillibrand, who has ran a pretty good campaign. Give it. I mean, it's difficult for everybody to stick out, but she's at least kept herself relevant this far. 
but I don't think it was a smart move on her part to latch so hard on that, especially after Biden responded in the way he did. So, Arpin, we, we kind of talked about the front runners, but I'm curious what your opinion was. Like, were there any sort of outliers that are going to be vying for those additional spots in the next debate that you thought like did a good job of making a name for themselves? Well, right now we have seven candidates qualified for the next debate. That's Biden, Sanders, Warren, uh, Beto O'Rourke, Kamala Harris, Cory Booker, and Pete Buttigieg. Andrew Yang and Julian Castro are the next candidates on the outside looking in. Uh, that's kind of surprising. I would have figured maybe Kirsten Gillibrand would be on the outside looking in or an Amy Klobuchar, but it's those two. In terms of the ones on the on the fringes, I, I don't know if anybody kind of uh, made that made an impact that can be lasting. I really think that last night was the, the beginning of the end or maybe just the end. For, for several candidates, I think that your your Tim Ryan's, your John Delaney's, your John Hickenloopers, your I can I can go on. I'm but. so sad because I won't be able to say his moderately funny last name consistently over and over. But no, you're right. I mean, especially I would like to think that you know I keep myself fairly well informed and and pay attention to the political landscape. But there were a couple of times where. I was like, I'm not totally sure which former governor this one is. Like, especially with some of those outliers, like, man, there's just so many people on that stage that I'm, I'm kind of anxiously waiting for the crowd to thin so I can delve a little more into their policies and, and see the differences among all of these candidates. I think, I think that in terms of the next debates, the Democrats got to at least huddle up together and just be like, all right, we cannot send more than 10 people to these debates. <laughs> we need to do this on one night. We need to do this, you know, fairly smoothly. They cannot, you appreciate the fact that people are, are engaging themselves politically and making donations and, and participating. But at the same time, there, there are some candidates who really need to look at the mirror and ask themselves, why are they continuing? Now, Arpan, do you feel like some of these debates are kind of a way for the front runners to look at potential running mates? Or do you feel that, that those kind of standout moments aren't, aren't quite in that, at that level yet? I think that it's probably not at the front of their minds, but I definitely think that there are times during when we're selecting running mates that you can look back at a uh, period like this and think this is a good idea. I, I think it was um, Carly Fiorina and Ted Cruz in 2016. Oh, man, that, throwback. Yeah, I forgot, you know. Do you remember when Carly Fiorina sang to Ted Cruz's children on stage? Because that's a thing that happened. I am, have Look not that up, seen fam. that. I really don't think I will. <laughs> um, but anyway, going back to the original point, they teamed up after they uh, after I think Fiorina dropped out. Uh, and Ted Cruz mentioned that, oh, during the debates, I knew she was a strong candidate. Sure, sure. Uh, I think you could see candidates tonight uh, or in these debates that are standing out, especially for some of the more progressive candidates. Maybe if they want to pick a moderate to run on their ticket to appeal to more voters, there are plenty of moderates out there. So, so something that I thought was kind of fascinating is there were some candidates that they would be asked by a, a moderator, you know, how do you feel about... Uh, income inequality in urban areas or, 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 you know, something, something like that. And they would say, well, actually, I want to talk about education <laughs> or no, let's talk about foreign policy. Um, and I thought that was kind of fascinating that 
that they were trying to sort of steer the direction of the conversation toward their, I mean, frankly, talking points, but also did you feel that there were any um, like specific issues that you thought they were really trying to like band to as, as like, this is going to be, you know, the democratic issue we can like rally behind against Trump. Oh, well, healthcare in 2018, the Democrats did so well in the house running on Medicare for all. I think that you'll probably see that on the 2020 ticket as well. Um, education, foreign policy, uh, and, uh, criminal justice to, especially, um, for, for candidates like Kamala Harris. But, um, I do, I do agree with you. It was interesting seeing the way the, the conversations were steered. Um, there were some times where you could go back and you could listen to the original question and you could tell that in the response, it was never answered or even addressed. Um, and I think that when you, when you have these like battle Royale style debates, things are going to get lost in translation, but sometimes there weren't even attempts to, um, focus on stuff that maybe candidates were uncomfortable addressing. Yeah. Have the next debates been announced? They have not been, uh, announced or tentatively, I think set for the end of September. Okay. Um, but that's not been confirmed anywhere. So these debates were at the Fox theater in Detroit, Mm -hmm. um, which is gorgeous. And I saw a ton of people on Twitter talking about like, man, this is an amazing backdrop Uh, for for what's going on. Maybe you guys should come to Detroit more often. (laughs) That's exactly what I was thinking. Um, but for large like swaths of the debate, you really couldn't tell where they were based no. on how they were responding to questions. I don't know if you thought that as well, but I was kind of like, well, you guys could be talking about this absolutely anywhere. Like Detroit is such a microcosm of, of issues for the country, and I just am not sure that they really capitalized on that audience. R- right. The I think it, Flint was mentioned as – and obviously fl- the Flint water crisis is an important issue. But Flint was m- mentioned just as often as Detroit. Sure. And like – you're right. Detroit is kind of a microcosm for all these issues that are affecting the country as a whole. And I don't think that candidates were able to, at least not during the debates, they were in Detroit all week. They were at the NAACP convention uh, last week as well. And I'm sure that they spent time talking about Detroit issues. But to a national audience, I think that we have to focus more on cities like Detroit um, other than just when, you know, the moderator's uh, compared Baltimore and Detroit, um, trying to tie it back to a tweet from President Trump where he called Baltimore crime infested. And Don Lemon's basically saying, oh, you know, Detroit's like Baltimore. It's it's crime infested. He didn't say that, of course, but I'm paraphrasing. It was heavily implied. It was heavily right? implied. <laughs> and it needs to be more um, – I think that candidates can do a better job of not only saying how we're going to fix some of these problems, but also pointing back to examples of how these problems are being fixed. Yeah. I would totally agree with you that that candidates need to pay more attention to cities like Detroit. However, I'm going to add to that that they need to pay more attention to the rest of the state of Michigan and not just Detroit as well. Um, We saw that Michigan was such an important state in 2016, um, and it very narrowly went red for the first time in a really long time um, statewide. And we saw kind of these last minute ditch efforts um, on the the night before the election, both Hillary Clinton and Donald Trump were in West Michigan. Um, Hillary Clinton spoke at, at Grand Valley State University's uh, um, uh, indoor arena. And, and then later that night, the very last campaign stop of the entire campaign for Donald Trump was at the Deltaplex Arena. It so, was at DeVos Center, actually. Oh, was it? Oh, I'm yeah. so sorry. Thanks for the correction. Um, but like it, it is 
kind of crazy to me that politicians think they can win the state just by focusing on this one location in Wayne County when there's the entire state of a really diverse population and groups of people. Um, so I'm curious to to see that. And and Governor Whitmer has invited all candidates running for president to to stop in the state as often as they can. So I'm curious to see kind of what play the state gets moving forward. Right. And I can let the candidates run on a little or in on a little secret. The Democrats will win the city of Detroit. They will win Wayne County. Right, it's not like they really have to fight for it. Right, it's the the more suburban and the more rural counties that they'll need to pull votes from in order to because it's a very thin margin, and it, they'll need to pull votes by getting people who maybe aren't as politically engaged. They don't tie themselves to one party or the other, but if they think an election is important, if they think it's a referendum on American politics, they will come out and vote. And the Democrats or the um, the Democrats that want to win the presidency are going to need to do that. Yeah, and, and I hope that that's not just expanded to Macomb and Oakland and Washtenaw counties. I hope that they, they kind of see the entirety of the state and, and what Michigan population has has to offer politics. I mean, I mean, right here in Ottawa County, it's the fastest growing county in the state. And that means demographics are changing. Uh, it's, it's still a very Republican uh, area. But there are pockets that They're, voted Democratic in 2016, exactly. including the city of Holland proper. Right. Um, and there, there are votes to be, to be grabbed here. Um, but it's up to them to kind of make their way them. over. Yeah. Right. And on that note, any final thoughts? You know, I just think that really this is – I mentioned it before. But this it has to be the last two-night affair. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> this needs to be, I, you know, uh, right now we have seven candidates – qualified for the next debate i want to stop there i andrew yang and Julian castor are probably going to nudge their ways in but do you want to see just the top 10 or keep it to the top seven i go top five honestly top five but <laughs> our pen's ready he's ready for I, this to be done this, this cycle has gone for so long that the fatigue is already setting in i think that they should really i think eight is a socially acceptable okay. number cut it down to eight sure. do a couple of Eight if because there are going to be maybe not debates proper, but there are going to be events like this forums, yeah, town, town halls, halls, all that stuff every single month until the primary. So at a certain point, we're going to have to start limiting our options here. Otherwise, nobody's going to emerge as a clear candidate until the very end, and at that point, you're kind of getting too late um, to emerge as a serious, serious challenge to the president. We're in it for the long haul, folks. <laughs> Oh, boy. Strap yourselves in, folks. Keep it here. It's going to be a wild, wild ride. Uh, and on behalf of Arpan Lobo, Audra Gamble, I'm Brian Bernalis. I want to thank you all for listening and see you next time on From the Newsroom. Newsroom.